You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hi, I'm Liam Hooper. And I'm Peterson Toscano. Together, we co-host the Bible Bash podcast. Each month, we look into a different ancient story. We're curious to find insights into our own queer lives. We discuss these and share our findings with you. You can find the Bible Bash podcast pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out at the end of each month. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. In this episode, I speak with religious scholar and intersectional demonologist S. Jonathan O'Donnell. We discuss their new book, Passing Orders demonology and sovereignty in american spiritual warfare which is an examination of how american evangelical beliefs about spiritual warfare intersect with transphobia racism and homophobia this was a fascinating conversation and i hope you enjoy it as much as i did but before we get to that i have to thank my patrons My patrons are my personal lords and saviors, and I truly could not do this without them. This show takes an enormous amount of work. It takes hours and hours and hours of work every single week to produce, to schedule, to edit, etc. And so my patrons really do make this show possible. For this week, I have to thank Tara Stolas, Fidelis Owl, and Rima. Thank you so much, truly. If you are listening to this and you would like to join their number, just go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, or you can follow the link in the show notes. For just a few dollars every month, you get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcasts, advanced releases of this show, and access to my live show on Discord. Lots of interesting stuff on my Patreon, so please take advantage of that, and whatever you are able to give goes a long way. However, I understand if you are unable to give right now. The economy is still on fire. We are still living with the consequences of the COVID pandemic. So there are other ways to support this show. One of the best ways is to just leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts that tells our digital overlords that this show is worth sharing with others. And if you do leave a review, I will be sure to read it on the show as thanks. Finally, this show is sponsored by thesatanictemple.tv. If you are interested in the occult and weird fringe religious stuff, if you're interested in new religious movements and ritual, then thesatanictemple.tv is fantastic. You can use my promo code SACREDTENSION, all caps, no space, at checkout to get one month free. All right. Well, with all of that finally out of the way, I am delighted to bring you my conversation with S. Jonathan O'Donnell. S. Jonathan O'Donnell, 
welcome to the show. Happy to be here. So you are fascinating and you have a fascinating book. Your book is called Passing Orders and you call yourself on Twitter an intersectional demonologist. So this is right up my alley because I'm fascinated by concepts like spiritual warfare, demon possession. I grew up in that setting where all of those things were taken to be true. And now I am fascinated by the experience of those things, right? By the experience of the supernatural. I'm fascinated by the experience of spiritual warfare, demon possession, and how that interfaces with social issues, right? I'm, that, that is fascinating. So with that little introduction, tell us some about who you are, what you do, and what is intersectional demonology? Okay, uh, so hello everybody. Uh, my name is S. Jonathan O'Donnell. Uh, just Jonathan is fine. Um, I am currently a visiting scholar at Queen's University Belfast in uh, Northern Ireland. I study I study a lot of things. I'm primarily a scholar of the American Christian right, but I also study demonology more broadly in, in different social situations. Uh, I sometimes study it in early modernity, for example. I am the author of Passing Orders, uh, Demonology and Sovereignty in American Spiritual Warfare, which is a case study of contemporary American spiritual warfare and its intersection with various systems of dehumanization and discrimination or systems of power within contemporary America, including uh, homophobia, misogyny, transphobia, anti-blackness, Islamophobia, and settler colonialism broadly. It's a very mm. wide-ranging book. I refer to myself as an intersectional demonologist, slightly, slightly tongue-in-cheek, but not entirely. And by that, I generally mean that I approach demonology in the context of its intersections with systems of social prejudice and discrimination, but also in terms of the way that the way that people who are marginalized within certain intersections of power might use or channel demonology, like mm. as a tool for thinking through their their positionality within society. So what I'm hearing you say when it comes to intersectional demonology is that there are kind of two ways of approaching this this thing that you say is tongue-in-cheek, but I think is actually very, very interesting and compelling. And, and there are kind of two ways of approaching it, which is one, how do power structures use demonology and concepts of spiritual warfare in a way that correlates with oppression of people of color, trans people, immigrants, etc., right? And so there's that one angle of it, but then there's the other angle of it, which is how do minority groups and oppressed groups use demonology to make sense of their world? Is, is that, am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, that, those, are, those are the two. I said half tongue in cheek. Okay, so great. I, I, am, I am still Okay, kidding. very good. <laughs> um, so, so let's take a step back, and could you define for people what intersectionality is? And this is really important because in America right now, people are losing their goddamn minds mm. over critical theory. And, you know, they're, yes. you know, the... Not just in the U.S., the U.K. Oh, really? Well. Okay. So, yeah. So everywhere. Yeah. It's, it's transatlantic. Okay. Transatlantic. There's this transatlantic freakout over critical race theory and, and critical theory more broadly. And, and mm. intersectionality is pretty central to that. What is intersectionality? So intersectionality 
at its kind of base level was a framework of analysis that was initially coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. But like, if you trace it back, has a kind of older history within particularly like black female socialist writers like Angela Davis, for example. Mm. Uh, at its core, intersectionality is a way of looking at the way that different intersections of marginalization compound each other within society. So for example, you can be marginalized as black or as queer or as a woman or as a black queer woman, all of those, or as, you know, any intersections of those. And the way that those different forms of marginalization interact with each other and create kind of novel or different experiences of marginalization. Intersectionality is essentially a, a lens for unpacking those types of experiences and the way that those experiences manifest in society. Right. And so take, for example, the fact that I'm gay. So it's like I am standing in this one street and the homophobia bus is coming at me. Right. Mm. But I don't have but I'm not standing also in the black street or. Yeah the disabled street or the woman's mm. street. But let's say someone is gay and black. Well, now they're standing at this intersection where the racism bus and the homophobia bus are coming at them. And that is a totally new and novel and unique experience from what I experience. Mm. Right. And, yeah, and, and then there's a, and then you can just keep adding, you know, those inter, the, those intersections where then say they're a woman or a trans woman. Well, there are these, these additional layers of, of novel experience that are, that, that cannot be reduced to simply the experience of being gay or the experience of being black, but it is a new thing entirely it is a yes. new form it, it is yeah i don't know how well i'm explaining that but that's kind of how i understand it no that's 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 a that's a that's a good kind of basic like framing for understanding what intersectionality is yeah and you know for for all the freak out about intersectionality i actually think that it's a really useful tool for understanding the world like i yeah. i think it's very common sense it's very practical it's very obvious to me and i don't understand why why people have such an issue with it but all that aside so <laughs> in your book passing orders you start out by discussing the liminality of satan <laughs> as you you so you know i'm a satanist this show has a large satanic audience and this is way <laughs> way to the satanist yes audience. hello to the satanists ave <laughs> ave <laughs> um what i found so fascinating and i'm i'm not done with your book yet but one thing that i found so fascinating in your book is how this this setup between paradise and the fortification of paradise versus the passing nature mm. of of satan mm. and how the how satan undermines that fortified nature it exposes the temporality and fragility and porousness of paradise and then how that anxiety can be superimposed on american structures socially could you talk some about that? Because I just found that whole thing fascinating. First of all, am I adequately representing what you said? 
that that is the beautiful summary of what I said. Okay, so wonderful. I'm so honestly, honestly, now I'm like, oh, how do I how do how do I up up that that summary of, of my own work? <laughs> um, so I guess I'll I'll start a bit with the etymology of paradise. Paradise, the word, um, stems ultimately from a kind of Median Persian term for a kind of royal garden. Think of it almost as a menagerie. The royal garden was like it. It wasn't just the gardens of the palace. It was also the gardens where royalty kept various animals throughout from from the kind of imperial holdings. It was where they kind of brought various kind of life forms and animals and plants from all over the imperial territory. And in that sense, it works as an encapsulation of of imperial or sovereign power in the sense that it's a kind of microcosm of the empire as a whole. And just to pause and to clarify, when we say paradise, what we mean is Eden. So yeah, yeah. So I don't know if I made that clear. So when when I mm. when we talk about paradise here, what we're talking about is the symbol of Eden, mm. the perfect garden. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Eden Eden draws on that particular because the the idea of paradise kind of predates. I mean, maybe not predates Eden, but predates mm-hmm. like what we would refer to as Eden. But Eden was kind of an iteration of this mm. idea of the, of the royal garden, of the garden that contains all of the creatures that are kind of beholden or tamed by the ruler. And so like Eden Eden or paradise more generally represents this image of sort of absolute sovereign control uh, over a given space. And Satan or demons generally in the book, but let's talk about Satan specifically, like unsettles this. In the book I use the kind of the good example of uh, Paradise Lost and John Milton's kind of image of, of Satan kind of infiltrating Eden uh, in the kind of prelude to the fall, where he kind of shifts through different sort of animal forms. Like he doesn't, he's not stable. He becomes a cormorant. He becomes a, probably a goat, some kind of unnamed grazer animal. And then obviously the serpent is the kind of culmination of this. But he doesn't belong in Eden. He takes on different forms, kind of transient forms. Uh, And these work to kind of ultimately kind of unsettle the stability of the garden. And then ultimately through the fall kind of destabilizes the entire edifice, kind of introduces this ambiguity, this instability to what is ostensibly supposed to be a kind of vision of, of the kind of total supremacy of of here divine rule, but kind of kingly kingship or kingly rule. Yeah, you know what this reminds me of is kind of a parallel to that, the colonial version of the witch that can transform into different kind of Mm. ordinary animals. And so, you know, like transforming into a rabbit or, or transforming in, into, you know, whatever. And this sense of, there there's this this sense of disguise and trespassing and never mm. quite knowing what, and and how that undermines and, uh, and, and kind of proves that this fortified compound of paradise, you know, going back to what you were saying, how this, this passing nature of Satan exposes the fortified compound of paradise to be a fraud. It isn't fortified. It it isn't eternal. It is actually very malleable and porous, right? And so how does that apply? How does that mm. how does that anxiety that this myth reveals apply to America, to American culture? 
and spiritual warfare. So, I mean, one of the most obvious ways that I think was sort of very recently revealed through some of the um, hostility to immigration in the kind of late, late Trump presidency uh, was when various kind of court evangelicals, as they're sometimes term, termed at the Trump presidency, yes. uh, explicitly, explicitly started using uh, the image of paradise, like as an image of the fortification of the US mm. against, against immigrants specifically here. And they often appealed not just to kind of Eden, but to particularly to the kind of apocalyptic image of the New Jerusalem, the kind of the, the, the return to Eden at the end of time, as the idea of heaven having a wall and a gate and a strict immigration policy. <laughs> yeah, like, I think I think the I think the evangelical meme that went around was like heaven has a wall, a gate, and a strict immigration policy, and hell has open borders. It's yes, yes, and I'm and unironic too. And like this, this was critiqued by various kind, of particularly like liberal and progressive Christians, as being a kind of. I guess, bastardization of, of the image of, of salvation. But to me, it revealed it revealed that way that that image of paradise as the, the garden that must be fortified, but also which cannot be fortified, mm. as this kind of founding idea of the way that it intersects with, I guess, the kind of Christian nationalist. Um, underpinnings of contemporary kind of even like conservative evangelicalism in the United States, the idea of America as, as a kind of pristine space that has to be guarded against, but also to kind of return to that that image of the of the garden as the menagerie, the menagerie of tamed beasts and and plant and animals. It's not just a it's not just a place that must be defended. It's a place in which everything must be tamed everything must be like subordinated to the will of divine kingship of of sovereign power and that anything that challenges that anything that doesn't fit anything that refuses to be tamed or which cannot be tamed either has to be excluded or it has to be eliminated. How does this interact with LGBT populations, LGBT plus populations? Because I see, I, how, how do I say this? Mm. I have experienced this firsthand as a gay man, mm. where there's this sense of distortion and trespass that comes mm. from the very existence of LGBT people. And, and you know, I, ex I was on the receiving end of this growing up in the conservative church in, in North Carolina in the mountains here in, in, the, in, in the evangelical world. And that, so your image of Satan as this trespasser that undermines the kind of the assumptions of paradise that undermines the the power and assumptions and all that about paradise i see that 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 being innate to the experience of what it means to be mm. gay because being gay kind of it breaks down those hard binaries that you know evangelicalism has about male and female you yeah. know and and it breaks that down and we can't help but break that down just by our very nature but does that make sense you know that that's how yeah. i read your book mm. so so how do the spiritual warfare texts so you in in your book you go into mm. the spiritual warfare texts how do those texts approach things like 
immigration and LGBT people? I mean, they approach them in connected but different ways. Um, and I think this is one of the things I try to talk about a lot in the book is the way that contemporary evangelical demonology uses demons in different ways, depending on the groups that it's trying to target at any given time, but in ways that often overlap and intersect with each other. Getting, I mean, chapter two of the book, which is the chapter on Jezebel, is the kind of one that I that I go into kind of in most detail on particularly gender and sexuality, because Jezebel is often called upon to kind of figure deviant forms of, of gendered and sexual expression. And this is this is not Jezebel necessarily the biblical figure, but Jezebel the demon. Jezebel like the demonic yes. archetype. And Yeah, the demonic archetype of Jezebel, who is modeled and inspired by the biblical character yes. but is is seen as kind of like in a way she's projected as like the demon that was behind the biblical character in a lot of these yes these texts absolutely like, she, she's seen as pre-existing and for anyone who thinks that this sounds absolutely fucking crazy i grew up surrounded by people who were obsessed with the Jezebel spirit. They, mm. like everything that went wrong, it was the Jezebel spirit. Anything that tried to interrupt the the church or interrupt, mm. you know, kind of like the peace in, in the Christian community, it was the Jezebel spirit. The rise of gay rights, the Jezebel spirit. Abortion, the, Jez the, 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 the Jezebel, Jezebel spirit. spirit. I was about to say the Jesuit spirit. I was like, no, that's wrong. That's something else. Um, <laughs> that's, that, 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 that'll be a different spirit. That'll That'll be a different episode. No. Um, so, yeah, for people who think this sounds nuts, this is actually a thing. Okay, go on. This is actually... But, yeah, that, that kind of gets to the heart. So, like, Jezebel is really interesting because of all of the kind of demonic figures who get talked about in contemporary spiritual warfare. She's probably the most ubiquitous. Like, she's kind of an everyone. Yes, she is. Um, it's, like, it's rare that I find a text that doesn't at least obliquely mention her. Like, even if just an offhand comment somewhere. But one of the things I find tends to unite usages of Jezebel, despite how kind of all over the place she tends to be in these texts, is this idea that she kind of challenges the, I guess, the the normative or normal, or like, quote-unquote, normal structures of the family. And that can be the, sort of, I guess, the, the biological family, the traditional family, particularly the sort of heteronormative family. The nuclear family. Um, yeah. But it can also be the spiritual family of the church, for example, or even like the the family of the nation, the idea of the national whole. Jezebel kind of comes along and is this force that disrupts what these people see as the kind of proper relationship between groups of people, between bodies, between nations, even. Um, so she's used gay rights, obviously, things that are seen as kind of disrupting the, the traditional family uh, mm -hmm. in some ways. Also, globalization or immigration sometimes, like things that are seen as kind of disrupting the the kind of body of the nation, like breaching its kind of its its kind of cohesive. It's like national sodomy. It's like yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, like if if you think of mm. like the family as a body, or the church as a body, or the nation as a body, then it's it's like Jezebel represents the unholy and ugly and awful quote-unquote to them gross yeah. forms of sexuality and and unlawful entry you might say yes. <laughs> un, un, unlaw, unlawful entry is a good, is a good, is a good <laughs> although I, I do like 
I do like national sodomy as a phrase. That's, That's the title of your next book, and you're welcome. Title of the next book. But at least title of a chapter somewhere, I think. Yes, and you're 100% um, going to credit yeah, me. Yeah. Um, I will I will do it. I'll put you in the acknowledgments. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so like, I think it's really important when you think about the way that the way that demonology functions in contemporary spiritual warfare is that it tends to be incredibly holistic or like, totalizing in its narrative, um, which means that things that disrupt the order of the family also disrupt the order of the church, the order of the community, the order of the nation, and ultimately kind of the order of the cosmos itself. Like it's this totalizing form of disruption. Gay rights as something which in their worldview challenges that kind of foundational, like that, that foundational linchpin of the normative family, whether that's through homosexuality or through like trans or whatever it happens to be, something that is seen to disrupt that quote unquote natural family, like echoes out from that structure and ultimately kind of starts to disrupt the entire system, which is one of the reasons that Jeze the Jezebel spirit is so ubiquitous in these texts, because she's kind of the foundational like act of disruption that opens the family or the nation to these other kinds of demonic threat that, that are seen as existing, whether these are like uh, projections of Muslims, for example, or immigrant groups who are seen as kind of coming in and changing of the kind of white Christian fabric of America. You see this very easily in a kind of slightly more secularized, I guess, framework in both European and American kind of reactionary discourses of kind of the feminization of the West, for example, which kind of opens it to attack from the, these kind of coded, virile kind of masculine immigrant immigrant groups who can kind of come in and, and dominate the culture. And like Jezebel in some ways operates as a kind of spiritualization of that narrative, this narrative of the kind of the disruptive feminization of like quote unquote Western or quote unquote Judeo-Christian civilization, which then like leaves it open to to kind of demonic infiltration. Were you the one, I can't remember, were you the one in your book who talked about demonology as a theory of everything, as a as a totalizing theory of everything? That... I, I, I mean, I do quotes, I quote someone who says that. Okay, like, yeah. I, I, I follow that. That that was um, Bruce Lincoln, who's a study of religion scholar, kind of talks okay. about. That's right. I, about it might have been you or yeah. some other I don't remember yeah. where I was reading that, but yeah, like I, I, I do, I do quote that in my book. Okay, that so must have been you it. Probably Perfect. Got it from that. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Talk some about that. Yeah. So, like Bruce Lincoln, he's a scholar of religion. Um, in an article that's actually on um, ancient Zoroastrian demonology, it's like what the original article is about. Hmm. And refers to demonology as a unified field theory in the sense that it attempt it amalgamates different various different discourses he kind of lists uh, like he lists a number of them but ultimately it's it's a unified field theory that attempts to name categorize and comprehend threats to whoever us happens to be in this context but it attempts to kind of unify all different idea or different threats to to that us like under a single umbrella like as a kind of as manifestations of a kind of singular totalizing force of i guess evil in their worldview but it's essentially a way of unifying disparate threats under under a singular umbrella yeah so an example of this would be you know in the world that i grew up in everything from terrorist attacks to cancer were all seen as equally mm. demonic 
as manifestations of the same evil force in the world. Mm. And so it's like, yeah, it was, it's this unified field theory of all, all the bad, all the bad things, all of mm. the things that threaten our place in the world, be it immigration, be it homosexuality, be it cancer, actual disease, you know, real things. Mm. And then more kind of ambiguous things like threats to the family or whatever. Mm. It's all evil. <laughs> it is all demonic. Yeah. yeah. Because it, it, it all because it, it all originates from that kind of foundational disruption in order, like in a kind of divine sense. Like yeah. the world in its intrinsic natural sense for these people is fundamentally ordered. Mm. Therefore anything that threatens that order, whether it's sickness, whether it's terrorism, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's immigration, whether it's like a domineering pastor that you have in your church, whoever it happens to be, fundamentally like originates from that foundational disruption that is mm. the demonic. Now, something that I think is worth clarifying here, and you make this clear in your book at the very beginning, you are not concerned in your work with whether or not the demonic exists. Yeah. You are concerned with how these ideas and experiences manifest in society would that be correct yes because that, i can that is correct. because i can imagine someone listening to to this and be like well do they believe in in demons or not that's i i, I get that question a lot yeah like <laughs> like do you believe in demons or not and the answer as from what i understand is that's not the point the point is people believe demons exist and we are going and we need to study how these experiences and ideas oppress people and interact with people am, am i right about that yeah that is correct and that that's what the book aims to do um, yes absolutely it's, it's not concerned yeah with, with whether or not demons are like metaphysically real in any absolute sense mm. whatever that would mean whatever <laughs> that even means i don't even know what that means but they are real in the sense that yeah people experience them and the idea of them have a real impact on the world people experience demons people are demonized people become demons like in yes. through through political imposition through social structures of dehumanization and discrimination Hmm. So demons are absolutely real in that sense. Whether whether like malevolent spiritual entities exist is is immaterial to the project that I lay out in the book. To quote Dumbledore, of course it's all in your head, Harry. Why on earth should that mean it isn't real? Pretty much. Pretty much. As much as much as I as much as I dislike quoting from As <laughs> much as from Yes, I <laughs> you know, I've I've basically relinquished quoting from Harry Potter except for that one. Except for that one because I find that that it's, one it's idea fair. so helpful. That one is fabulous. But yeah, no. Also, you know, we millennials, we need to get past Harry Potter as like our universal ver vernacular. Like we need to move on. It's time. <laughs> it is time for us to move on from Harry Potter as like our universal touchstone. Yes. Although exactly what will replace it, I think, is 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 uh, is a difficult issue given how influential it was on entire generations. Of people. Oh my God! Yeah. But. All that aside. This isn't, this isn't technically about Harry Potter. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a really interesting... As much as, much as I like to go on random tangents, like... Welcome. We do, we do have an hour. So. Welcome to Sacred Tension. Well, I do want to talk... I, would, I do want to have a show specifically about Harry Potter at some point because the intersection of that with culture is so fascinating. But, oh, definitely. All that aside... Okay, so you talked about Jezebel. I'm trying to remember the other 
archetypal demonic figures that you mm. cover in your book. Talk talk some I, about the other archetypal okay. figures. Uh, so the other, I don't, I mostly focus on three figures. The first of which is Jezebel. The second is the Islamic Antichrist. Specifically. That's right. So the Antichrist as Muslim. Hmm. Um, and the third one is Leviathan, um, who is a demon very close to my heart. I, I do, I do love Leviathan. <laughs> so let's start with Leviathan. Let's start with the one close to your heart. Talk about Leviathan now. I ha- and also I have yeah. not gotten that far in your book yet. Gonna, okay, so, so this is Levi- all new to me. Yeah. So Leviathan is a really interesting demon. Um, Leviathan is from the book of Job, specifically, uh, but is the kind of biblical variation of the the chaos dragon of kind of ancient Near Eastern cosmology, echoed in places like Tiamat and kind of other, and a kind of ancient chaos, chaos dragon stories. Um, so Leviathan is a representation of essentially primordial chaos, but also through there's various kind of biblical associations with pharaoh but then also through in western society these your particular european political philosophy through people like thomas hobbes and his kind of famous book leviathan uh, leviathan also becomes kind of an image of the state or of of order and control so leviathan has this interesting tension between being both a symbol of chaos and a symbol of order but through the image of pharaoh of order that is not right or that is not sort of divinely ordained it's 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 bad sovereignty essentially Mm. and the chapter kind of looks at that duality and the way that it manifests in in contemporary spiritual warfare discourses uh, which tie back to the biblical creation narrative the idea that of the deep the kind of primordial deep from that existed before the world so just a random throw etymology out there like the word in hebrew for the the deepest tehom um which is a cognate to the word it basically stems from the same root as tiamat like etymologically so tehom is in some ways the the primordial chaos like the the chaos dragon that is that is eminent in elsewhere in Near Eastern cosmology. And Leviathan emerges as a kind of repetition of that, that primordial chaos. The, the chaos that was kind of tamed at the beginning of the world, but which refuses to go away, which constantly kind of comes back in this, in this kind of draconic form, sort of emblematized through the seas, through through the serpent. So you see like the, the serpent in Eden could also be read kind of almost as an iteration of this kind of draconic, disruptive chaos that, that should have been defeated, but hasn't quite been. Uh, until the apocalypse happens, there's the line in Revelation, which I, I loved when I first realized it was there, which is when, when heaven and earth are remade at the end of time, there is a line that says, and the sea will be no more. Mm. There is no sea in the, in the post-apocalyptic like paradise. Because the sea is chaos. The sea... Because the sea is chaos. Um, yeah. The sea is Leviathan, the sea is chaos. So in the chapter, I look at the way that Leviathan exists as this symbol of the thing that refuses to go away, almost. The, this force that constantly kind of is supposed to be gone, but which infiltrates and disrupts like sort of normative society or normative order, particularly in America. 
And I trace this through a number of different usages because Leviathan, kind of like the Antichrist and like Jezebel, has a lot of different variations. But the two that I really look at is the association of Leviathan with socialism, particularly through. I was the just about to bring that up. Yeah. I was, I was Levi- just Leviathan, like, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, but socialism, like in the kind of conservative reactionary like, fantasy of the kind of the, the socialist state that is oppressing their freedoms. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that came to um, mind when you were describing this was the Soviet Union, like a a, hmm. a power structure that is outside of the will of God, that is yeah. that embodies both chaos and order simultaneously. Hmm. I could see how, like, how the Soviet Union, during, like, the rise of the hmm. Christian right, would be the quintessential manifestation of Leviathan. Yeah, but because of that, like, do you use the Soviet Union as an example there, actually, like, you have the 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 Cold War ends, the Soviet Union is defeated, and like ostensibly kind of American capitalist Christianity kind of triumphs over over right. everything. But we still have socialist politics. Yeah. We still have we have Occupy Wall Street. We have these kind of you know resurgent grassroots movements that are like challenging American capitalism, which become coded as manifestations of Leviathan, of the past that refuses to go away, the the force that should be defeated, that should be over, but that constantly kind of is coming back to kind of disrupt this this dream of kind of of finality, of of totality, of of triumph. So it's like supernatural socioeconomic whack-a-mole. Yes, in a way. (laughs) Um, The the other usage, which I think is particularly important um, for in America specifically, is that Leviathan was often used to conceptualize certain forms of like indigenous spirituality or indigenous traditions as well. Particularly like often referencing like serpent gods from Latin America or like places like the Serpent Mound in, in Ohio, I believe. Um, but essentially they're using using Leviathan in a similar way to code in particularly like American indigenous or kind of native traditions, which similarly much like socialism in that model, like are the thing that the settler state is supposed to have kind of superseded, but that still exists. Like there are still indigenous people, they're still fighting for their rights, fighting for their their sovereignty through things like the Dakota Access Pipe against things like the Dakota Access Pipeline and things like that. Um, so you have Leviathan manifests uh, in a number of ways, but in the chapter, the ones I look at are this kind of image of socialism, image of kind of indigeneity and indigenous spirituality, two different forms of the past that refuses to stay past within within kind of a, an American Christian nationalist narrative of triumph and narrative of kind of of overcoming these past forces that are supposed to be overcome, but that refuse to go away, which continually challenge its kind of claim to supremacy. That's fascinating. Yeah. And and just to clarify, you are identifying these archetypes within American spiritual warfare, specifically from your study of texts with yes. in America. Just just to make sure that my audience is clear on that. Yeah, just to give just to give an oath. So basically, um, I started this research during my doctoral thesis and kind of carried on in the years afterwards. Um, I read about 300 spiritual warfare manuals. Um, oh my god. And basically, I, I read about 300 of them with a bunch of kind of news articles and blogs and sermons and kind of things on top. And I looked at the kind of the figures that were constantly called upon, like the themes, the ideas that these different texts 
were kind of drawing on and articulating often like without any explicit connection to each other. And then the book is kind of me thinking through the themes that I guess were most interesting or kind of grasp gripped me in, in particular ways that I found needed kind of thinking through. Mm. Um, they're not all of the themes that were there because in a survey of 300 texts, you're going to have things that I don't talk about. Uh, but that's why my research is continuing because I can talk about those other things now that I didn't. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, what you were just saying about chaos dragons and and how Leviathan kind of represents the eternal chaos that threatens the oil, how it just like the chaos that just keeps keeps coming up. That's that's giving me flashbacks because I'm reading Jordan Peterson's second book right now. Yeah, he, he, he loves his chaos oh dragons. my god he fucking <laughs> loves his chaos dragons he I, is I, so into so, it i am slightly proud that i managed to write that whole chapter without once referencing good <laughs> yeah i sadly i could not get I, I through wrote, this I interview i wrote it like during the height of his like his... kind of rise to fame and i was like do i throw in a reference i'm like no i'm not gonna do it i'm good not job gonna throw in a well done. Unfortunately, I could not get through this entire interview without a reference to Jordan Peterson. Um, but, and dear listeners, you can expect either a blog post or a podcast episode about Beyond Order, Jordan Peterson's new book. I did an episode eons ago with Douglas Lane, the really famous socialist, mm. about his first book, uh, 12, Rules Rules for for 12 Rules for Life. And so maybe I'll get another like big guest to discuss Beyond Order. We'll see. That'll be fun. Yeah. I'll tune it's in a lot of fun. That. What's that? I'll tune in for that one. You know what I you know, I what I should really do do you know who Philosophy Tube is? Yes, yes, I know. She I know, did I know she did great. this fantastic video on Jordan Peterson's new book. And I'm like, ugh, if she weren't so out of my league, I would one hundred percent have her have her on the show. <laughs> but she's Yeah, that, she, that video was so good. She she's pretty she's so huge now that she that she will she does not even acknowledge tiny creators like me anyway okay so we've talked about leviathan we've talked about jezebel tell us some about the muslim antichrist okay i guess to kind of the antichrist is a figure who crops up in a lot of different ways in a lot of different texts so in order to kind of curtail it a bit i focus specifically in the book on the antichrist as muslim in in evangelical texts particularly mm. kind of post not just post 9 11 because it has a bit of a history it kind of goes back to the early 90s is kind of some of the earliest well it goes back a lot older than that but in spiritual warfare like you start getting early 90s texts like george otis's like last of the giants i think it's called which is like yes I, re I remember that book yeah uh, that, so, that's one of the earliest ones on on like the antichrist is muslim in spiritual warfare so just to just to pause really quickly, I'm realizing that there are so many terms that we need to define here. Like it's it's occurring. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like it's it's occurring to me all so many times through this conversation uh, that we need to define lots of terms. We have not yet defined the term spiritual warfare in this context. Can you just tell people what spiritual warfare okay. is before we move on to yeah. the most so Antichrist? Spir spiritual warfare is a contemporary charismatic. Pentecostal form of practice, which is oriented around fighting demonic spirits that are active in the world. Um, it does this primarily through prayer, particularly what they call it militant forms of prayer. 
which can involve prayer walks where they kind of move around physical spaces or, or you know whether those are rooms or houses or whatever it could also involve political activism like pushing for legislation getting people into positions of power um, but it's essentially a way of conceptualizing the world as torn as a battlefield between spiritual forces. The world is divided into good and evil, light and darkness, angels and demons, God and the devil, and they're kind of constantly battling it out for the souls of humanity, but also for kind of geographical territory in a mm. lot of ways. Whether those are houses, like in the kind of typical haunted house idea, but also neighborhoods, cities, entire nation sometimes whole continents even. yeah you know what's so fascinating about that and and you have a whole section about this in your book so i was a missionary in youth with a mission and one Ooh. of the things oh i have so many stories <laughs> to tell you but i was a missionary in youth with a mission and one of the things that they were big believers in was uh, was in principalities this idea mm. that that town that there was like this hierarchy this demonic mm. hierarchy where like lesser demons would be over specific towns mm. and then there would be demons over specific counties or or city big cities mm. and then states and then countries and then continents and then like going all the way up to satan right but but it's regional it was it was like a Avon Satan. It's like if like <laughs> like multi-level marketing demons yeah. that who are who are responsible responsible for different regions. Mm. And so, you know, when I was in London, they would pray against the demon of London, the principality of London who holds sway over the city of London. Or when I was in Miami or in um mm. uh Bangalore in India or T uh, Tianjin in China, like they would pray against the principalities that are controlling these states. It was super, it, it's really interesting. Yeah. And so it's like geographic. It's like these spiritual powers correlate mm. to to human inventions, like state yeah. lines. <laughs> it, I, I just found it so interesting. Actually, this is really interesting because I think there's actually a really interesting shift that starts to happen in spiritual warfare, like th through the end of the Cold War, and particularly into the, into the kind of war on terror period. So modern spiritual warfare, I mean, you could can trace it back to kind of early Pentecostalism in the early 20th century, but particularly it starts out in the kind of late, mid to late 1980s with people like Peter Wagner and Cindy Jacobs and kind mm. of these evangelists who are coming up with what they term kind of third wave spiritual warfare. And third wave spiritual warfare is it's highly territorialized, but it's also incredibly binary. Like you can easily see the way it kind of mirrors Cold War geopolitics in the sense that it divides the world up into these two kingdoms, good and evil, light and darkness, that are battling it out for ideological and territorial control of spaces. And like, if you look at the spaces they're vying for control over, particularly before the collapse of the Soviet Union, they're the Middle East, Latin America, East Asia, the places that were in a lot of ways like the quote unquote third world, like the unaligned territories that, that America and Russia were also vying for control over during this period. This I think shifts it still exists, it's still a very big feature of contemporary spiritual warfare, but in the post-Cold War period, and particularly in the War on Terror, you start getting a reconceptualization of the demonic that I talk about in the book through the lens of asymmetrical warfare, modeling that kind of War on Terror geopolitics of American kind of global hegemony, 
that is essentially being confronted by in the 90s rogue states like individual states that exist within the kind of within the totality of american hegemony but that are unaligned with it or against it and then in the war on terror kind of the terrorist cell like the the individual kind of networked groups that exist kind of within within american hegemony kind of opposing it and this really feeds into the way that spiritual warfare i think starts to reconfigure in the kind of 21st century some writers start explicitly using asymmetric warfare to talk about demons the idea that there's this kind of totality of of divine power or even divine empire that implicitly or explicitly maps onto like the US and like US empire more like broadly. But the idea of demons as kind of waging this asymmetrical warfare from these positions of kind of as like regional cells that are like fundamentally weak, but are like working kind of weird like networks with each other, like across geographical territories to kind of fight against divine power or divine omnipotence, which I think is like one of the problems that spiritual warfare comes into when it has this, or perhaps Christianity more broadly, when it has this idea of, of divine power, or divine omnipotence is how does essentially a very movable object withstand an unstoppable force? Right. And the weird answer that spiritual warriors seem to come up with, although they don't ever really articulate this, is demons just work together really efficiently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which kind of gets back to your point about hierarchy, like this idea of like, like Satan and demons are, they're not like the Holy Spirit. They're not conceptualized as, omnipresent or omnipotent they're contingent beings Hmm. they have limits so they delegate like satan might be at the top but satan's not really involved in these like small regional like demonic conflicts like he's delegated to the principalities who have delegated further to others who have it's like it's it's like a gigantic silicon valley tech giant it It is it Uh, it really is yeah which I think is actually interesting because I think there's like I think there's two different ways you can take it. And me being the being the decadent socialist that I am, like I ultimately kind of start to read it almost in a kind of anarchist terms as these kind of almost like like cells of leaderless resistance, kind of oh, fighting I love against that. divine power. That that that's kind of how the book ends. To kind of that's fantastic. Spoil, spoil well, that that's very Anatole France. That's very Anatole France. Yeah. Revolt of the Angels. But you could also read it, and I don't do this because because I'm a decadent socialist. But you could also read it like as a commentary on the corporation, like the idea of like of the capitalist corporation that doesn't obey geographical boundaries, but that is it is geographically situated and it's kind of in this structure of verticality and, and hierarchy, but that is ultimately kind of diffuse with different departments kind of doing their own huh. their own thing within the corporate structure. And like, I think you can kind of read them either way, depending on your political inclinations. That's um, so fascinating. So let's pivot back to the Antichrist. And, oh, yes. And <laughs> um, you know, that was a that was a fantastic yeah. detour. Yeah. So so the Muslim Antichrist uh, uh, situated specifically within Islam. Yeah. And to clarify, you are examining these themes from within spiritual warfare texts. And so I yes. assume that they have, and I've experienced this mm. because I grew up reading these manuals, they have a fixation on Islam. Mm. So so just start with that and and why the why the evangelical fixation on Islam and how does that relate to the Antichrist? Okay. So I guess I should have you read the Islamic Antichrist chapter yet? I have read about half of it. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, just uh, I'm just checking 
But yeah, so essentially, I think one of the main reasons that there's this fixation on Islam is because it's because of the family resemblance and the familial connection yes. with that Christianity and Islam share. Hmm. Islam is very similar but also different enough that it provokes anxiety. And I think the way that they use it is really interesting here. Uh, and this is kind of why I use the Antichrist specifically. You could also use Baal um, as another figure that, you, that frequently crops up. B-A-A-L. Yes. Yeah, apostrophe A-L. Uh, who I think serves a similar function in the, as the kind of negative reflection of of Jehovah within the kind of biblical narrative. But essentially, it sets up this idea of mirroring and this idea of the kind of the abject reflection, the reflection that isn't quite quite right. Um, and the way, one of the ways that they do this, and I think is really interesting, is the way that, uh, particularly in the kind of post 9-11 period, a lot of evangelicals start, I wouldn't say they start looking at Islam, but they start because it's very selective in the way they do it. But they start trying to integrate Muslim accounts of the end times and Muslim like scriptures and narratives into their own demonologies in a way that constructs them as a kind of reverse mirror image of their own narratives of the end times. So for example, they claim that like the Messiah figure in Islam is actually the Antichrist. And they being and things like that. Being they being these spiritual entrepreneurs. These spiritual, yeah, these spiritual entrepreneurs, these spiritual yes. warfare writers. Um this was particularly popularized by a guy called Joel Richardson, although he wasn't the first one to come up with it. But his his book he wrote a book called like Antichrist Islam's Awaited Messiah was the title of the book, I think. And that book kind of seems to be where this idea was most popularized from, although he wasn't he wasn't the first person to come up with it. But okay, so for a start I should clarify that like although the Islamic narratives that these people are drawing on like do exist uh, islamic eschatology is a lot more nebulous than christianity's it's not systematized so they're drawing on very selective readings of islamic eschatology to read them as parallels of their own selective readings of christian eschatology but what i think is important here is the way that they are trying to assimilate islam into their own tradition in a way that accounts for it. Because of course, historically, Islam comes after Christianity. It, you know, within within that narrative, it, it supersedes Christianity in some ways. It comes after it and it says, okay, they got some things right, but ultimately they got these things wrong and we're coming along to correct the record for on, on you know, what actually happened in, in the kind of biblical narratives. Um, and so there's this anxiety about that. Like how do they account for this thing that comes after them and ostensibly tries to correct them? So they then have to kind of try and integrate it and try and assimilate it into their own narratives through, through like through these uses of the antichrist to be like oh islam was explained within our own tradition like through this kind of antichrist figure so it's a way of kind of alleviating that anxiety by accounting for, the, for this difference but of course by doing that i mean by framing islamic eschatology as a reverse mirror image of their own eschatology they're also doing the opposite they're also claiming that like there's no reason here why the Islamic eschatology isn't the right one, like other than they've claimed that Christianity is true. But like, if you take their narrative at face value, then it's kind of a toss up at that point. Um, mm -hmm. And but this kind of gets to the heart of I think why this fixation on Islam. This fixation on Islam is because it it mirrors a lot of their understandings of, and I, I, I guess this is their their 
image of Islam, their image of Islam, which is different, I think, importantly, from Islam itself, because Islam is hugely diverse and exists Absolutely. in a whole variety of different contexts. So their image of Islam is a, ref- is a kind of abject or twisted reflection of their own image of divine order. And to kind of go back, to call back to Jezebel briefly, I think this is really, and, and the kind of narrative of kind of Western feminization and the kind of virile, the virile other. So while Jezebel is highly feminized in spiritual warfare discourses, Islam is the opposite. Islam is very masculinized. In, in these narratives. It's it's constructed through the image of particularly the kind of the virile, threatening, particularly Muslim man who kind of is more masculine than the the Western man within 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 the Christian, within these frameworks. And indeed, within these fra- within these narratives, like Jezebel's destabilization of the normative family, of the normative American nation, is seen as what allows this kind of Islamic antichrist to kind of come into the nation and kind of take it over through these narratives of kind of masculine, of like the masculine threat and the kind of the feminization of the self. But I think this is really important. Their image of Islam as is this kind of hyper-masculine, patriarchal, kind of domineering, incredibly legalistic framework is the exact replication of the very patriarchal order that they are trying to instigate yes. in America. <laughs> yes. Like, the thing that just, they are afraid of is yeah. what they it, it's a mirror image of the kind of repressive regime that they're trying to create here. Yeah, which is the thing. Like it's 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 exactly the same, but it's wrong because it's Muslim and not Christian. And that's <laughs> that's the intrinsic difference. That's the essential difference. I think that's why they have this fixation on it because they they've constructed this image in which it is it is essentially exactly the kind of thing that they are trying to create, but it's also wrong. It's also not, there's something intrinsically not right about it mm. because it because it's seen as rooted in Islam, which is coded as demonic, which is coded as as other, as, as lacking this kind of essential, essential truth um, within their narratives. But yeah, they 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 and this is why the Antichrist, the Antichrist is is Christ's mirror image, is like the is the uh-huh. abject reflection of Jesus in a way that and this is why I use the Antichrist to talk about the way they talk about Islam, because it is this it's this narrative of doubling, of of replication, of of mirroring that it, that is destabilizing of of the order they're trying to construct because it is essentially that same order but not fitting their their vision of what a kind of utopic, perfect society should be. You know what this is reminding me of is what our mutual friend John Moorhead calls Mm. heretical disgust. And I I think he got that from some other Mm. scholar, but heretical disgust being the idea that we have, we reserve our greatest disgust and resentment and hatred for people who are just like us but not quite mm. and how we yeah. t- and how we tend to the the people for whom we 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 tend to reserve the great our greatest hatred are those who are quote unquote like us but just different enough to fall into that uncanny valley to to spark mm. this revulsion and you know I experience this all the time I think that there are people in my life who are relieved that I am no longer a Christian I think that there are Christians mm. in my life who are relieved that I am no longer a Christian because they could not stand the fact that I was a Christian who was gay and affirmed gay marriage. 
right? That yeah. was more of an abomination to them than just being an atheist gay person, right? Mm. It's it's like because that. Then they can just because uh, then they can just other you like completely. Yes, they because then in a separate category. That's exactly over here. Exactly. They don't have to try and reconcile the difference. Exactly. Like. Because of course, like if you know, if you're a Christian and you're gay and you affirm gay marriage and they don't, then they're like, Oh, is this person a Christian? Am I really a Christian? Like it promotes that anxiety, that that yes. need to reconcile what they see as this intrinsic difference. You know, they, they either have to judge you or they have to judge themselves. Exactly. But if you're if you're completely outside of the fold, they can just kind of like write you off over there. That's exactly uh-huh. it. That's exactly it. And and so, you know, I I think we see the exact same thing with, you know, the long history of Catholics and Protestants, for example. Mm. Or what you're describing of the family resemblance between Christianity and Islam and and how that just provokes such massive anxiety mm. in people. And on this note, it's worth noting that historically Islam was initially conceptualized within Christian like European Christian discourses as a Christian heresy. Yeah, like, exactly. Initially, yeah. Ra- rather than as like a separate tradition. It was it was framed as a Christian heresy. Well, unfortunately, I think we're coming to the end of our time, <sighs> but I think that there's so much more to talk about and you're welcome back anytime. So if ever you have a new book, oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. So, so if ever you have a new book that comes out or a new article, or you just want to come on and chat, please just let me know. And you're welcome back anytime to, to wrap this up. What is one book that you would suggest on this or any subject that you would recommend to my readers or to my listeners rather on, on spiritual warfare or on, anything, you know, anything, anything, oh, anything. This is really religious scholarship, new religious movements, uh, spiritual warfare, anything. I mean, I could plug my own, but that's probably be kind of cheap. Let's plug your own. <laughs> Passing orders. Go Passing buy it. Orders do, go, go buy it. it. It's um, fantastic. Yeah. So th- there are like, I'm trying to think. Like one other book that's on spiritual warfare in America, which touches on areas that I don't talk about, is Sean McLeod's book American Possessions, which is another academic work, which is specifically on spiritual warfare in relation to ideas of property and possession. In America, uh, although yeah, so that that would be one. Ooh. Oh, Adam Cox goes the Prince of This World. Very good. And 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 the follow up neoliberalism's demons. There you go. All right, perfect. Everyone, go buy those books, read them, and talk about them on my Discord server, which you can find in the link in the show notes. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you. It's been great talking to you too. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And that is it for this show. The music is by The Jelly Rocks and 11D7. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is made possible by my patrons. Go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. For a dollar to five dollars a month, you get extra content every week and you ensure the long life of my work. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and Dante Salamoni. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. shows like this one, visit rockcandyrecordings.com.